We're going to begin with America's longest war tonight because that war is officially over. The last American military plane left from Kabul's airport at 3.29 p.m. Eastern time. 20 years after the U.S. toppled the Taliban in the aftermath of 9-11, that group is back in full control. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. A twin suicide bomb attack at the Kabul airport. At least 100 people were killed, including 13 US service members in the deadliest day for America in Afghanistan in a decade. The Taliban back in control of the country with its medieval morality. And the worst yet to come. Women and girls denied basic human rights. Horrific memories of soccer stadium executions spurring a chaotic attempt to flee the country before it's too late. If we stay here for one more hour, there is going to be a massacre. I'm telling you that there is going to be a massacre. Everybody will be killed here. Please, we are under attack. There is a big, big mob. They are attacking us and they are armed. Reports all day the Taliban were nearby, possibly moving into the outskirts. By dusk, it was very evident they were clearly inside the city itself. And the natural extension of that, of course, is the images that we've seen now of their fighters inside the presidential palace. It's not just a few hundred, it is thousands of them. I don't want to be here anymore. On August 30, 2021, at 3.29 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the last American aircraft deployed to the United States' longest war departed Afghanistan. On the ground below, the country they left after 20 years of fighting was disintegrating. In a matter of weeks, the US withdrew every American service member deployed to Afghanistan. The decision to exit completely was predicated on an arrangement negotiated between the US and the Taliban in Qatar during the twilight of the Trump administration called the Doha Agreement, where the Taliban committed to ending their long-running program of harboring Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations in exchange for the withdrawal of all NATO troops from Afghan soil. As American forces departed, the Taliban retook the entire country in a stunningly short period of time. Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country. Soon after, the chain of command in the Afghan military broke down, and like that, Afghanistan was back in the hands of precisely the same barbaric regime that the Americans showed up to unseat 20 years earlier, almost to the day. And while the Taliban's express undertaking to stop the global terror threat emanating from Afghanistan was politically convenient for Western leaders led by President Biden, who were looking for a way out of the conflict. It also wasn't worth the paper it was written on. We went to Afghanistan for the express purpose of getting rid of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, and we did. What interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with Al-Qaeda gone? The leader of the terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawari, was killed in a CIA drone strike over the weekend in Kabul, Afghanistan. The Doha Agreement, that is an agreement the Taliban made not to house Al-Qaeda officials, not to attack the U.S. The official said Zawahiri's location is a clear violation of that. 
A year after the US withdrawal, the leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawari, who succeeded Osama bin Laden after he was killed in a US Special Forces raid in Pakistan in 2011, was located by the American Central Intelligence Agency and killed in a drone strike. He was living in the home of the new Taliban government's Minister for the Interior, Sirajuddin Haqqani, in downtown Kabul. That's leading to fresh concern that Afghanistan is once again a safe haven for terrorists plotting against American interests. Al-Qaeda is back as a result of the Taliban being back in power. The UN is saying 10 to 15,000 foreign fighters are gravitating back. Remember, it only took 19 to plot and plan and hit 9-11. And in what may actually be a cynical campaign to initially set a brutally low standard for the rights of women and girls, to be walked back in a bid to extract concessions of legitimacy from the global community later on. The Taliban have unilaterally vetoed the personal autonomy of women all across the country. Girls have been expelled from schools, universities, and effectively excluded from all forms of learning. And if you're wondering about the outlook for women to be included at any point in the government of the country, then you need only compare the new government's wholesale rejection of female education in Afghanistan to the English translation of the regime's self-proclaimed moniker. Taliban means the students. Most recently, women's freedom of movement has been completely revoked. Females are now not allowed to exit their homes without a male chaperone. And while the world focuses its outrage and dismay on restoring Afghan women's ability to attain an education, as our interview guest on today's episode points out, If you're not allowed to go shopping, if you're not allowed to go anywhere, then it's cool for what? I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of JP Morgan Chase. This is the first episode in a new series on the intersection, focusing on Afghanistan. Today, we'll begin with a candid conversation with Dr. Yassin Zia, a recipient of the Ghazi Mohammed Akbar Khan Medal, Afghanistan's highest governmental award for his bravery on the front lines of the battlefield over more than 20 years. General Zia is the former governor of Takar province and deputy defense minister, a four-star general, and the former chief of general staff of the Afghan security forces. This is the first recorded interview he's given to the Western press since the US withdrawal and collapse. In episode two, we're going to sit down with Gita Bakshi, a former CIA officer within the agency's clandestine directorate of operations who operated in Afghanistan extensively during the war. She's what those in the intelligence community refer to as a spook. And she went by a different name out there. If you believe the movies, when CIA officers deploy into the field, they often have a call sign or a secret code name. Did you have something like that? Uh, I did. My call sign um, was Blackbird. Earlier this week, I travelled to a city in Europe where General Zia is currently living in exile after the Taliban took over control of Afghanistan. And the reason he wants to keep his location a secret is that he's planning a counteroffensive to take the fight back to the Taliban. 
Well, good morning, General Zia. Thank you so much for having me into your home today. Uh, I think it'd be great to start with an abridged summary of the various roles that you've held in the Afghan security complex over several decades. And I'd love if we could begin with the first time that you ever picked up a weapon and entered the fight. Thanks, Jack. Uh, I started in 1996 when the Taliban took first time the Kabul city and I was a medical student when I saw the first day they uh, executed and uh, killed the uh, former president of Afghanistan. Uh, and, and also the same day, they tortured a lady uh, with the baby on her chest. Then I moved to the north of Afghanistan and then joined with Commander Massoud, the national leader of Afghanistan. It's a very, very long fight. Uh, many of your contemporaries or friends of yours that started fighting around the same time still involved, still in the fight? From very beginning, that uh, because I was a teenager, the rest of that generation, uh, even if they are alive because of age, uh, they, they cannot walk to the mountain and to fight against Taliban right now, but their sons and their believers are still fighting. And that's why there's a group of people still, a lot of people around Afghanistan, they are fighting for freedom, which means it's continuously a fight for humanity. The country for for so long has had to deal with conflict. Um, it, it must just feel like part of the national identity to some extent at this point, does it? Uh, that's the, the, the problem of Afghanistan. Mainly Afghans are fighting for uh, the, the right people, for the, fighting for freedom and for, for the humanity and for the rest of the world. Even when we fight the Russian, that wasn't only our fight. We fight for Westerners and for all people around the world. Mm. And once we succeeded, then the, the world forget about us. Then another fight, which was the against terrorism. Uh, and, and again, they left us alone. And, and we are fighting this fight for almost for all humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember the first time you got into a gunfight? Yes, the first time was north of Kabul, um, nineteen ninety-seven, uh, when the Taliban attacked my uh, my hometown, and we had the gunfighting there. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Oh, that that was a, a huge uh, number of the Arabs, and uh, I mean the terrorist Arabs, not the normal Arabs, yeah. uh, and Pakistanis plus the, um, the Afghan Taliban. Uh, they they attacked to, on on our village from different areas and men and women and everyone picked the gun. Uh, the people had experience or no experience. Unfortunately, we lost that battle, and and a lot of uh, people from that village uh, died. Do you remember how that made you feel losing that battle? Uh, because they were a lot and they had different nationalities, fighters, and we were only tiny village uh, with maybe to 250 fighters, which a lot of them, including me, they were not very well trained people or very well experienced people, then uh, that's why we lost the, the the village. And they burned, of course, the mosque and the uh, school and, and the, our houses. But, I mean, I ask if you recall how it made you feel because a lot of people would experience something horrible like that and flee, whereas you experienced something horrible like that and decided to throw yourself fully into the fight. Um, so from an early time, I guess, you saw how important it was 
to fight back against this sort of extremism? Oh, yeah, definitely. When I was a medical student, I saw a, a lady with a proper Islamic clothes, but still the Taliban tortured her on the street in front of thousands of people for no reason. And that's why I picked a gun to stop them and to free Afghanistan from them. And still, we, we, we believe the same. Yeah. And if we look further into your career in the military, could you run us through some of the many high-profile roles that you had, ranging from the governor of Takar province through to the chief of general staff? Throughout that decorated career, which roles were the most important to you? I think I, I played different roles. I, I started from junior officer, a military officer, and it ended to before a star general during my career. The most important part was my time when I was a normal case officer operating uh, against terrorism in different parts of the world. Uh, but uh, the, the area which I had uh, uh, a lot of responsibility, uh, that was being a general chief of staff of Afghanistan Army. Could you describe what that role involves? The general chief of staff? Yes. In Afghanistan, the position of General Chief of Staff is not only to lead the army. In Afghanistan, the intelligence service and police force, they are law enforcement, but at the same time, they're armed force. Whomever has the gun, uh, all of them are obeying you, direct or indirect, and you are the commander of all of them. I mean, that's an enormous amount of responsibility. Was that a, a heavy burden to command such a broad group of different services across the country? Uh, but the problem was politicizing the, the activity that was the mass, most difficult and, and, and hurting feeling of not only me, all the generals and all the responsible people because uh, you must separate politics from, from security things in a country like Afghanistan. But unfortunately, it did not happen. I mean, and, and that, that's a common refrain the world over from uh, military leaders who go from an operational command into something which has more political consideration. So talking to various stakeholders who were deployed in Afghanistan, one theme that's emerged about your career is that even as you assumed these very senior command positions, you often took active steps to put yourself personally in the middle of the fighting rather than observe it from a command center as would be more typical. I heard one great anecdote about another senior person in country who was working with you on targeting a terrorist cell. And when the operation launched, they called you for an update. And instead of hearing you loud and clear on the other end of the line in the operations center, instead they heard gunfire and you yelled into the phone that you were in contact and you'd get back to them once the operation was completed. <laughs> Why did you choose to do that? I mean, there is no difference between my blood and a soldier blood. You have to teach your soldier how to be brave, but at the same time, how to take care of each other. You have to show them you respect them and, and you are next to them. That's why till I was responsible for, for the security matters, we didn't lost any province. When you are on the ground next to your soldier, that will give them morale. They will, they will see respect from a high-ranking person, having the same food with them, have, wearing the same clothes, same like them, being next to them in a, in a front line and being the same time force or general and a, all commander of the force. 
that was good feeling for for my soldier and and I know Afghanistan is in a very unique situation you have to give the moral for the people i hope the after me at least the politician could understand the importance of the personalities to the people who were the front line they defended Afghanistan do you miss it do you miss being on the battlefield definitely definitely i'm a professional soldier and and i wish i could join back to the freedom fighters and to to be next to them because for a general who fought all of his life for the freedom and for his people and country that's not a very good thing to be outside of Afghanistan and not feel the pain of our people and to not be next to them from all that time spent on the battlefield what are your observations about the enemy that you were fighting about the Taliban yeah, the Taliban uh, specifically the Taliban this group is not flexible by negotiation by talk this organization actually set for uh, destroying the things not to building they are good to destroy the governments they are good to destroy the villages to to burn the villages to burn the mosque to burn the school they, their main target was to destroy but the world is asking this type of people to be responsible for security of a nation Taliban is still less than 100,000 people and they care about each other they don't care about the rest of other 40 million Afghans yeah it's a very interesting point and one that i don't think is that well understood in the west that there's you know 100,000 odd actual Taliban it looks a little bit more like organized crime than anything else doesn't it because they use fear they use violence to quell any resistance in the on in local communities as opposed to there being a large group of of actual Taliban members in each different place well they are a criminal groups uh, group and and they have another groups from uh, abroad which they they are helping them uh, i mean the IMU uh, ETIM um, LAT Jaish uh, Muhammad and some other organization al qaeda uh, and even some part of isis case front of them they they are a, a very well organized crime group which they use everything to benefit themselves i mean they are drug smugglers they are right now even they are uh, uh, controlling afghanistan but they are kidnapping the the business people and asking for money i mean they putting people in jail and asking for money therefore Uh, this uh, organization is not designed at the beginning for for any good things except the bad just to enrich those that are part of it at the expense of the people yeah the, even right now they are stopping the guards to not go to school to pressurize the international community to give them money and the international community in a, st- a state of thinking deeply to find the solution for this problem they still a lot of people believe we could work with the Taliban and let's talk with them but you can't are they good fighters like are they an intimidating enemy um it, you know how do you think about that versus say some of the other groups that you've come up against in your career oh the Taliban is not a, uh not the brave and good fighters to be honest they always use the people to protect them and and for the uh, right people and good fighters they are not using 
people as a shelter to protect them. Even the the resistance and groups right now, they are not a lot, but they're not using the people as a shelter. Yeah, it's cowardice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we we step to look at the withdrawal, when did you first hear that the US was leaving in the manner that they did? I mean, I'm trying to ask this question to many different stakeholders because it doesn't feel like the information flow about the execution of the withdrawal was very effective on the ground. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or not, um, but it seems to have caught some people by surprise. Uh, I wasn't surprised. Uh, I, I share my ideas with my government at the time, and, and I also I was uh, very well aware of the President Biden idea about Afghanistan when he was a vice president for Obama. And therefore, when he won the election, straight away, I tried to talk with my friends uh, at the government. Then a lot of people did not believe me, including uh, my leadership, uh, the president and uh, specifically the vice president, Amrullah Saleh. Then that time also, I talked with General Miller and some other soldiers on the ground, and, and they did propose the uh, the CENTCOM and uh, Kabul commander, 2,000 people in Afghanistan or something like that, the soldiers. But uh, they were not sure to what would be the consequence of their decision of the White House. But uh, yes, the time when Biden announced, then that was a uh, shock for almost everyone. Can you describe what your experience of the 15th of August was like? Uh, before 15th of August, I lost my job and I didn't have any responsibility at the government. I was a, a normal citizen uh, inside my house. Uh, on 14th of August, uh, uh, I saw people are losing the morale, the chain of command broken. People are not responsible for for the people who are under them. And a lot of people that contacted me from battlefield from different parts of the country to, hey, sir, what we should do? Because I didn't have any responsibility to have the right answer for them. Then I said, you have to listen for your uh, chain of command. And they, they told me that there is no any more chain of command. Then I learned to the this collapse is coming. On morning 15th of August, again, I contact with some of the commanders, with the Air Force commander, with the SMW commander, with the with the General Adizé, and with some other uh, uh, brigade commanders. And then I saw the problem will be much, much bigger than, than what the Afghans thought. Then I think by 12 o'clock or, or 1 p.m. at 15th of August, uh, a lot of things change and everyone run away to different directions. Some people enter to the airport, some people went to their villages uh, and actually no one knew exactly what's going on and, and what would be the next. Then the rumor started uh, among the politicians, the president ran away, but they didn't know where. Uh, and uh, But of course, the other rumor was about the vice president, which uh, they said one night before the collapse, he left it to his hometown called Panjshir. Then uh, that was, uh, these things of rumors demoralized um, a lot of people uh, because if you don't have the boss, then how you could manage the situation. And then uh, we land to president is somewhere not inside Afghanistan and his team. 
then the i was with the pilots and with the all air force team then we made the decision to okay let's go uh, and secure these pilots uh, we flew to uzbekistan and tajikistan with more than 50 aircrafts and all the personnel and pilots and uh, and now they are in texas and united states How did it feel sitting on an aircraft flying out of your country as it fell to the Taliban after 20 years of fighting? That was a very difficult moment of my life because uh, I didn't have any other choice except to uh, evacuate all these great people who who fought and and who bombed the Taliban under my command. Then I was responsible to take care of them. Even I didn't want to go anywhere. If I didn't have any other choice, then I said, "Okay, for this time at least, that's better to bring these uh, tools out of hand of the enemy." Yeah, you don't want them getting the planes. And- yeah, and 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 also to to rescue the life of these great people who are the most important group of uh, people and and all afghan armed force then we brought to this two countries and and later on we worked with the, our american friends and now they are in united states mm. if was it general milley you said had the idea of maybe keeping a central command presence in kabul i mean if that idea had have happened do you think that things would have unfolded differently no Gen- general mckenzie general miller general milley all of them they they were happy to have a, a small number in afghanistan it's probably not for you to speculate on honestly why do you think that the us decided not to to keep some people there i mean i is there an obvious reason to you uh, i wish if i had the the right answer for this but uh, for me as a someone which uh, we were side by side with the our not only american with the with the nato allies to for many many years there wasn't any reason to at this time to make that decision they they could make the plan to okay step by step keep it 2000 and later on 1000 and a little more time in the days after the withdrawal um you know it became increasingly apparent that there was going to be a problem in evacuating everybody who um had the right to be evacuated or should have had the right to be evacuated how do you think about how many people got out and how many people got left behind is there a lot of afghan soldiers that wanted to leave that couldn't um and what are the taliban doing now to people who fought on the side of the afghan government and with the americans and and the coalition during the war are they are they at risk now for retribution plan because everything happened accidentally the evacuation plan was to evacuate the, the american diplomats and the western diplomats not to uh, the, the afghans and and their families uh, i don't have the exact number to how many people with which uh, standard of capacity they evacuated people who were very close partner with the united states they left it behind Uh, but yes of course there is a couple of uh, commanders or some other people who had relation with the uh, US marine or or army or the people who were at the airport that's that's different thing and it's not huge number but uh, talking about all the people who supported the United States and the the NATO allies at the past 2 years 
Uh, I mean, a lot of them are left it behind. And what the Taliban are doing with them, yeah, of course, the Taliban is every day killing them, uh, every day torturing them. They are on run and their life is in a very difficult situation. Is this short-sighted from the United States? Because it seems like there are two imperatives here to me, that there is a moral imperative to resettle the brave men and women who fought for Afghanistan, but also for the rest of the world. And there's a practical imperative, which is that this isn't going to be the last time that the West tries to intervene in the developing world because a regime is, for whatever reason, you know, viewed as being needing to go. And I just wonder whether getting this wrong is going to make that harder next time because people go, look what happened in Afghanistan. Who provided food for Americans? Who provided the fuel? Who building the buildings? They were Afghans. And now this NATO friends lifted this people to the hand of the enemy, which they told us is the enemy of humanity. They told every Afghan to this is your enemy. And our mistake, the Afghans' mistake, we followed the American policy about our neighbors. Now we don't have any friendship with our neighbors because they lost the trust as a friend of American on, on Afghans. And that's why they are not allowing the people to go as immigration people there. I hadn't thought of that, but that just adds an, another terrible aspect to the whole thing. When we look at the situation on the ground now, there's been some debate about how trustworthy the Taliban are in, ter- in some of their undertakings to have given up on harboring extremism and, and things like that. But I think at this point, Um, particularly after the US drone strike in Kabul in sort of mid last year on the Al-Qaeda leader at the time, Al-Zawahiri, I believe his name was. If I'm getting this right, the reporting says that that drone strike actually landed on the minister of the interior's house who was harboring the leader of Al-Qaeda. So to me, that seems like pretty incontrovertible evidence that the Taliban is still harboring terrorists and specifically Al-Qaeda. Is it fair for me to draw that conclusion? Oh, definitely. And it's not only about Al-Zawahiri. Al-Zawahiri was an old man and maybe an active guy sitting somewhere and, and having a cup of tea. But what about the other member of Al-Qaeda who was actively in Afghanistan using the training camps which uh, the, the US government built for Afghan army and Afghan police? And now they're using their facility uh, against against everyone, but uh, they are on the planning stage and training stage, and we have to wait and see what's their next step. But yes, they are they're openly active, and and it's not only about one old man called Al Jawahiri. There is all of these terrorist organizations and Central Asian fighters and the Uyghurs, uh, which is ETIM from China. Uh, their leadership and their team is openly in Afghanistan operating and recruiting their own people from their countries. And that's why people are blaming us. We left this mass in Afghanistan to create headache for the neighbors. But in reality, the Afghan government tried their best to save the country. But because of corruption, uh, weak leadership and so many other things, they didn't. But, you know, as we look forward, I mean, what, what do you, do you think that if nothing changes, if the current attitude towards the Taliban government persists, 
Is it likely that more terror threats will continue to emanate from inside Afghanistan? Is this going to rear its head again as a risk to the Western world globally like it did in 2001? The threat is definitely uh, will be uh, to the world, but uh, they will use different techniques because the previous techniques of 9-11 that was uh, hurt them badly and they, they lost the country. But this time, because they are smart enough and they learn about technology and a lot of things, uh, they will attack the world, but they will not take the responsibility. They provide the internet and, and, and shelter and everything to the, to the fighters and to the bad people in Afghanistan, but they will not openly say, hiding al-Zawahiri and, and, and the rest of other terrorist organizations. That's an even more pernicious threat than the other type, right? Like, yeah. I mean, openly accommodating al-Qaeda in training camps that US satellites can point at is presumably, whilst bad, not as bad, as something that you can't reach out and look at and touch very easily, which is going on below the surface of a regime which is semi-legitimate. This regime is a, the continuation of this regime will cause a lot of headache for everyone, which no one could manage it and control it. Because right now they are in a situation we could, with a little push, with the former ANDSF members, you could find a very easy solution for this problem. Uh, if they got, if if we could get the support. So let's talk about that. What could be done, which is practical, which could really have an impact in dealing with the problem? Practically, you could re-establish the ANDSF. They are ready to fight. The generation is the same. There is no 20 years of time. The training is still, they are fresh. Do you think the will is there? The will is there, yeah. The, the will is there. And where are they? Like in Afghanistan, are, are the sorts of people you're talking about spread all over the country? Or are there geographical strongholds that would be the smart place to launch a counteroffensive from? I mean, what would it look like? I don't want to talk about this tricky thing because that's uh, we have to keep it secret. If you talk with any former ANDSF soldier or commander, they could see their willingness, but 90% of ANDSF is uh, it's, it's ready to fight and, and, and you could, they, they could come in a one call together and, and any part of the country as long as we have the land for them to, to stay there and to launch uh, operations against the enemy. Would you would you go back and command them? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely and proudly. Yeah. Yeah. Ready. That's what you want to do? Yes. Yeah. That's why we, we already established an, an organization to sort of to create such a such a thing. But we, we are not there, but we, we are at the beginning of… In the process. That, that, the process. That, that process, yeah. It's inspiring to hear you say that all of these soldiers that have had such a tough time and, and have had to go through this that they're ready to go. I mean, to hear that that, that level of, of, of patriotism for, for Afghanistan is still there amongst, amongst yeah, your men. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm telling you to please, please, uh, even you could sit with them off the record and ask them, uh, there's a, thousands of people who are in United States. I'm not talking about Iran, mm -hmm. Pakistan, I mean, the region, I'm talking from far away and the, a, a modern world, a, a very good country like United States and people are willing to go. Generals, soldiers, uh, um, uh, brigade commanders, everyone is ready. So what do you think stopping it? Like what, what are the obstacles? Logistic and support, logistics. support. Just logistics. So it's, it's, it's about, it's that comes back to that point you were saying about Without there being that Western foothold in the country, it's just difficult to get everything in and out. Okay. 
Now, I think I understand the challenges a bit better now. And of course, lack of policy, because most of the countries right, right now, they don't have any policy to what they should do with the Taliban. Yeah, and this is a real problem, right, globally for the West, because one of the unintended negative consequences of the US withdrawal is that it just makes every other coalition ally that much further away from committing the next time that, that you know, in, in this case, for instance, right, it's just so difficult politically for, for Western leaders, even though it's the right thing to do, to, to, to get behind it. The last area of the situation on the ground that I think is important to focus on is what's going on with Afghan women and girls. Um, could you describe a little bit what's changed in terms of the day-to-day lives of a girl or a woman in Afghanistan now to before the Taliban took over control? Oh, do you cannot compare this to time. Uh, uh, that, that's not uh, easy to compare because that's completely, they put everyone uh, at the prison. I mean, they are in jail. They're no longer free human beings. Imagine uh, you, you, your wife cannot walk outside your, your, your house just for 10 minutes. They need a male chaperone to leave the house now. Yeah, then, then you, the, the girls are not going to school. That, that, that's something which the world tried to sort of tell them to allow the girls to go to school. Even if the girls go to school, what would be next for these poor girls? If you are not allowed to, to go for shopping, if you are not allowed to go for any work, then school for what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there is a that there is a bunch of things happening on 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 Afghan women, but uh, the world is only picking the parts which is good for their politics. They they are not picking all entire problems as a package. That's interesting. So, and that's things like you know not being not freedom of movement being taken away. You know, in addition to the the education issues. That's very interesting. Do you think some people um, that I've spoke to have said that they think the Taliban might be deliberately cracking down on girls' education so that they have something to bargain with, so that they can try to assert some sort of legitimacy to the West at a later date by going, oh, look, we opened the schools. Do you think that's wishful thinking or that might be true? Uh, no, they, they are uh, putting pressure by doing all of these wrong things on, on, on women and, and, and their rights. But in reality, uh, they, they are uh, a group of people where they don't have any respect for anyone. And, and they, they, the, whatever they say, is you, that's very difficult to trust them because it's untrustful people at the same time for for the for for that they putting pressure on the world to somehow recognize the government uh, if uh, i mean they putting a lot of pressure on girls and, and and women then in one point they will come to say okay we will allow the girls to go to school then what about our recognition they want to complete the deal with these type of uh, techniques, uh, which yeah, which, uh, but they, uh, they 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 did it. Actually, they succeed when they were in Qatar with the cheating the 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 the, the Doha arrangement and 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 that team, especially the American diplomats, because they never talk with the Afghan 
site as a, a face by face setting with Afghans and coming talking about the peace and negotiation and 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 the future. Uh, it was all American uh, great diplomats, which they have uh, uh, 50 years of experience of uh, uh, working uh, as a diplomat for for a country like United States, Mr. Khalilzad and, and others, and and the Taliban cheat them. Yeah, no, I- very easily. And now they are doing using the same techniques with the with the other people who are. Uh, in touch with them. That's right. They should be better card players, the US diplomats, you would think by this point, wouldn't you? Or at least know their opponent a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, General, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Um, This has been a really, really fascinating discussion. Thank you. Um, And um, I admire you greatly for uh, the leadership and and the, the enthusiasm that you have to to take the fight back to to the Taliban and in protection of your countrymen and and your country. Thank you. Thanks. Tune in next week for my interview with Gita Bakshi, a former CIA officer within the agency's clandestine directorate of operations for an in-depth discussion about the operation of the war, the withdrawal, and what steps she's taking to support Afghan combat veterans after the Taliban takeover. Until then, I'm Jack Wright. Thanks for listening.